I'm really not sure how men muddle it up, but they do. It's so clear in Scripture what the gospel is. It's so clear in Scripture what churches ought to be about. And yet, as clear as God's Word is, and you'll see it tonight, men have taken, in many ways, the gospel and churches and headed them in directions that God never intended, and God will not bless that. He does not bless that. God blesses the Word of God. God blesses His directives and, and fulfilling the purpose that we were placed here as a church. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 12, in Paul, the older apostle, speaking to young Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, he says to Timothy, remember to be thankful and grateful. He says, I thank, I thank him who has given me strength and uh, that is important in ministry, to remain always incredibly indebted to the Lord and grateful to the Lord in whatever capacity of ministry that you have. Praise God. It is the greatest honor to be placed as a Sunday school teacher, to be placed uh, in any facet of ministry that is within a local body and churches have all kinds. It's, it's an amazing privilege. And it ought to be just ate up with thankful and grateful. Um, so Paul says, I thank him. Notice he thanks him who has given him strength. And then he names the him Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he's grateful to Christ. He's grateful to Jesus. Because he judged me faithful. Now, it almost appears as if Paul is saying Jesus evaluated me and saw that I would bring faithfulness to the ministry. But that's not what the term means at all. The word faithful is the word pistos. It comes, it's, 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 it's like the word petros. Uh, it is the idea of a rock foundation. Uh, when Jesus, when Peter gave his great testimony, that, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus looked at him and said, upon this rock, this Petros, I will build my church. It wasn't on Peter, it was on the rock foundation of Peter's testimony that Jesus was God. There it is. That's what it's built on. This is the same type of word in the Greek, and so when he's saying to, to Timothy, look, God judged me, that I was solidly on the rock of the testimony of what I was going to share. When he saw that I had the message of grace clear and that I had received that message and I stood on that rock, he put me into the ministry. Not based on what Paul faithfully could pull off, but based on the rock that, Paul, that God saw Paul was standing on. God communicated grace to Paul. Paul embraced the grace stood on the rock, and based on that standing on the rock of truth, that's what put Paul in the ministry from God's perspective. Notice in verse 12, because he judged me pistos, he judged me faithful on the rock, appointing me to this service. Now verse 13, he always had in mind who he was before he came to Christ. Always, always accurately assessing 
his true identity apart from Christ. He never forgot who he was apart from Christ. Notice he says, though formally, even though formally, I was a blasphemer. This he did with his mouth. I was a persecutor. This is what he did physically against the Christians. And I was an insolent opponent. I was opposed to every phase of the Christian life. Paul never forgot who he was. And so that we don't forget, turn back to Acts chapter 8. Turn back to Acts chapter 8. Let's just read the three verses to remind us who Saul of Tarsus was. Because Paul never forgot. And it's an essential element in ministry to never forget the pit that he dug us out of. Who we were before we came to Christ. Because apart from him we haven't changed. Only Christ has changed in us. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, verse Chapter 7 is on the heels of Stephen's death, which Saul orchestrated. It says that Saul approved. That's a, that's a light word. It's approved of his execution. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed put. Devout men carried, buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. Verse 3, notice, but Saul was ravaging the church. Ravaging the church. Aggressively against it, entering house after house after house, knocking on the doors, hunting them down. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. When Saul knocked on your door, you were getting dragged down the street and thrown in jail for your faith in Christ. This is how aggressive this man was. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9. There's this great story of the revival down in Samaria through chapter 8. In verse 9, notice Saul is still at it. But Saul still continually breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He even went to the high priest and asked letters to the synagogues. And you kind of know the story, but I want to just remind you what kind of guy he was. And on that road to Damascus, he met Christ. And in meeting Christ, everything changed. But... He never forgot the kind of man he was. He he, he, rehashes it, if you will, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Go back there with me. Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and I was an insolent opponent. Just think of it. Just think of Paul in the first century. Just think of the man who who, who hauled your aunt down to the prison or or had somebody killed in your family, and here he's in the church preaching and ministering. Uh, He was God's choice to go to the Gentiles, which was probably a really good idea because he wasn't real popular in the Jewish circles. And so God chose him, but he never forgot. Who were you before you came to Christ? You remember? You weren't always in the church saying praise the Lord. Um, You know, you thought they were stupid, didn't you? I thought they were stupid. I thought they were wasting their time until I became one of them. How God changes things. Wonderful, wonderful the surprises of life, are they not? Uh, In his testimony of when he got saved, C.S. Lewis 
title it Surprised by Joy. Isn't that good? Surprised by Joy. Just remember back when you cursed the Lord. Remember when you made fun of Christians and mocked those who came to church. And now here you sit. God did that. You didn't do that. Isn't that beautiful? Don't, don't forget. Don't forget. Brother Wilbur, how long have you been saved? 68 years. But 69 years ago, you had nothing to do with him, did you? Not a thing. Never forget that. No, I'm a, no matter how long you know Christ, there was a time you had nothing to do with him. Notice the change in verse 13. But I received mercy. <laughs> I didn't get what I deserved. I received. Notice I didn't earn mercy. I received it. Once you get saved, we're taught we need to earn the mercy that he freely gives. And it's wrong. We're always receiving mercy, are we not? We receive mercy freely. We don't earn it. We don't pull it off by religious exercise. It's ours. Notice verse 13, it goes on. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That was us. We acted ignorantly because we were in a condition of unbelief. How good God was to overlook that. He goes on to say, and he says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Isn't that beautiful? The grace of our Lord, like a river flushing, rushing forth, overflowed toward our direction, swept up in the tide of it, rushed down into the river of God's love. Grace just poured out to us. Didn't trickle out of heaven. It overflowed and just covered us. That's God's grace. It doesn't just save us barely, it saves us completely. And the grace just overflowed. Notice for me, notice he isn't saying anything to Timothy other than what's happened to him. The strongest, most powerful, greatest testimony is never preaching to people like I'm doing to you. It's telling people what God has done for you. That's what the great impact is. You don't know what they'll allow God to do for them. And you can't tell them to open their heart to it. Man, you can tell them what's happened to you. And grace overflowed, it said to Paul, about himself. He goes on to say that this grace overflowed with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Notice the source. The love is not in us. It's in Christ Jesus. Mark that down. The next statement you'll find in verse 15, he gives a commendation of what I believe is a common statement in the early church. He said the saying, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, whether this was a song that the church sang, a chorus, or this was a common statement, this is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of what the church ought to be about. Notice he says in verse 15 that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Please don't skip over that because you're familiar with that. You have just read the edict for the church. You have just read the 
proclamation of our purpose and existence. Christ came into the world not to revolutionize society. He did not come into this world so that all the hungry could be fed. He did not come into the world to equalize the economies of our world. He didn't come to equalize people groups. He came to save sinners, period. Uh, Gangle, in his good book on church leadership, mentions a phrase, the gospel of the cause. He calls it the gospel of the cause. The cause to feed the multitudes. The cause to put a Republican in the White House. The cause to fix society. The cause to right all the wrongs everywhere around us. The cause to bring socialism, which will bring wonderful society within us. The, the church has been involved. The cause to eliminate abortion, which is murder. And Gangel rightfully says that the gospel of cause has replaced the gospel of the cross. The gospel is about Christ coming to save sinners. Period. Exclamation point. Nothing else is the purpose of his church down here and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't, don't just flush over that and think, good night, you know, it's, that is it. That's the core. That which is so simple has been taken by preachers and churches and run a rabbit trail and so far away from the very essence of saving sinners. That's what Christ came to do, to redeem you and I. That's it. That's it. Period. Nothing else. Let's finish the statement, and then uh, I, I want to look at a couple different places because Paul only says this is a faithful saying in three different locations, and they're all in the pastoral letters, and they're all sequentially important. So I want to show them to you. But notice the end of that phrase in verse 15. It says that he came into the world. He wasn't from this world. He came into the world for the purpose of saving sinners of whom I am the foremost. The King James is, of whom I am chief. I am the pushed forward most of all of them. Now, some have seen this, as, and it's very likely that Paul was a pattern. Paul was, God set it forth as a pattern of who he had the ability to redeem and forgive. The idea is if Paul can save, if God can save Paul, Saul, he can save anybody. If God can use a man who orchestrated the first martyrdom in the church of Stephen, who orchestrated, held the coats of those who stoned him, and propagated the whole thing, if God can save him and put him in ministry, there is no one's past that God can't forgive, overcome, and use. There's no past that holds us back from what he can do in our lives. All right, I want you to go to 2 Timothy. I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to show you the two other occurrences of the fateful saying statement, chapter two, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The first one is that he came to save sinners. Very basic, very fundamental, very beautiful. The 2 Timothy chapter 2 is the second reference, and it's all the way down in verse 10. Take a look with me to verse 10. 
And it says, by the way, verses 11 through 13 were probably also a song, something they sang in the early church. Verse 10 says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying, the saying is trustworthy. There's the second reference Paul makes in the Bible that something's faithful or trust, that this saying is trustworthy or faithful. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. Here is a statement of the cross. It is the equivalent of Galatians 2.20 that I'm crucified with Christ, I have died with Christ, now I'm alive. Watch the progression. The first one, he came to save sinners, to cancel out through their blood what they have done, and to place them in the family of God. The second faithful statement he gives, that we have died with him, therefore we live with him. This is, this is the essence of sanctification and growth as a believer. You don't grow by effort, you grow by seeing that when he died, you died, when he rose, you rose, and that life is in you. You're dead to everything past. You're dead to sin. You're dead to those sins. You're alive to God. This is the operation of God that God has accomplished. It's done. It's period. It's a faithful saying. It says, since we died with him, past tense, we will also live with him. Now, I want you to go to the third statement in Titus, chapter 3. Titus is also listed as a pastoral letter. Chapter 3 of Titus, all the way down to verse 5. Chapter 3 of Titus is the next book over from 2 Timothy. Chapter 3 and verse 5. Let's begin back in verse 4 since that kind of starts the sentence. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there in verse 8 is the third statement that Paul makes about some saying being trustworthy or faithful. Verse 8 says the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Here you have the whole cycle of the Christian life in three fateful statements that Paul makes in the pastoral letters. First, that he came to save sinners. Only sinners can get saved. He came to place sinners in the family of God. He wants us to know that we died with him, that now we live with him based on that living with him and his life in us, maintain a lifestyle of godliness and good works, based on that, not human effort. So you have the three sequential statements. Okay, look back at 1 Timothy, look back at 1 Timothy, and let's finish the chapter out. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. After he says, of whom I am the foremost, the foremost sinner, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the chief, as the foremost, as the one who is the, the man that I was before I came to Christ, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example, there it is, as a pattern to those who were to believe in him for eternal 
life. Now, there's been some bad folks who get saved. In fact, only really bad folks get saved. But there's been some people with some pretty horrible backgrounds. And go ahead and get ready, because when you step into glory, you're going to meet some very famous criminals who came to Christ. You're going you're gonna to very possibly meet some serial, serial killers who came to Christ. You're going to meet some people who are responsible for the death of thousands and thousands who came to Christ. And there they are. Paul is a pattern to all men that there's never a place too far that a man can go that he can't get saved and God can put it away. There is no sin that the grace and blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse away. Isn't it beautiful? It's the most scandalous message that those who are the least worthy get in while those who work their whole life to get in are shut out. Grace is radical. It's scandalous. I like the song, just call it what it is. Call it grace. It's the most scandalous thing there is. So it's a pattern, an example of those who might believe unto eternal life. And then he kind of goes into a spell. This is the closest Paul gets in these passages to having a, just a moment of ecstasy. Notice he says, to the king of the ages. I'm going to tell you, when your Christian life is centered on the king of the ages, on Christ itself, there's no burnout, there's no discouragement, there's no, if you get looking at people, looking at yourself, you're always going to get bummed out. If you look at circumstances, you're going to get tore up. You keep your eyes on the king of the ages, there's no place for a pit stop, there's no place for discouragement, there just isn't. When you got your eyes on him, you're not thinking of anything else. You ever have something on your body that bothers you, like a bad hip or a bad knee or bad, y'all got bad stuff, I know you do, I see you limping all over the place. You, 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 ever, you ever get busy about something, you get occupied in something, you get absorbed in a project or a job or your job? Karen's got a little thing in her teeth right now, right in the middle. There's a little hole right there where you can get air through. And she's got her tongue, you know, sticking through there, and she's got in the habit of blowing air through it. Now, when I'm really close to it, it about drives me nuts, because it's, I'll cut this out of the recording, but it, it, it's so, she, not that she even listens to the recording, but I hear a little... And I'm like, I want to strangle her. I want to choke her. So she went to the, uh, she went to the dentist to fix it. And the dentist, um, a, uh, a very nice oriental lady, told her, and I'm sure in a very sweet way, that I can't do anything for you. Keep your tongue out of your teeth. Stop it. Stop it. I, I could have told her that without her going to the dentist, but she wouldn't have listened to me. And I said to her this. I said, Karen, does, does it... I'm telling you, when, she's, when it's next to you, she's looking over your shoulder, I want to just strangle her. It's just irritating, the sound. And I said to her, I said, look, does that bother you during school days? She said, I don't even notice it during the day. Oh, really? How come? Oh, I'm so busy with the kids. I'm so absorbed with the kids, I don't even think about it. I, mean, I, don't, even, I don't even do it because I mean, when I have time, I'm driving home, I'm, you know, you just, you know. When you're so, the point is this, when you're so absorbed with God, you forget about all the little holes in your teeth that are driving you nuts. But when you're thinking about your own situation, it's the most miserable situation because it just drives you nuts. You get all depressed. When you're discouraged and depressed, it's because you're thinking about yourself or your circumstances. Here, God, here Paul is devoted to, to the king of the ages, and he's so absorbed with that 
that the hip doesn't bother him and the things, you know what I mean? It just kind of all goes away. Notice, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the one true God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen, in case you don't know, just means so be it. Hallelujah. That's, that's what I'm talking about right there. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you. Now, this charge, Paul, when he talked to Timothy, he said, look, this is a warfare as your command. I'm, this charge I entrust to you. It, it, is, it is an older man to a younger man. This is your duty. This is your responsibility. I charge you. Now, he had been put in the ministry for a while. But men always have to remember that, that there's something committed into their care, that they have a charge within them to fulfill to the end until he appears what they've been entrusted to do. We need that encouragement, that reminder, that this isn't an eight-to-five occupation that we do in ministry. This is life. This is all of it. And we run to the end, and we don't fiddle out. Notice he said, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Don't make that mysterious. Don't make that where a bunch of guys, this is a, it's, it's mentioned in, later on as the group of presbyters within that church recognized within Timothy gifts, talents, abilities that God had placed they saw the young man. They said he'd make an excellent pastor. And so they put him in the ministry. God put him in, but these men recognized these gifts. That's the prophecies he's talking about. Don't forget that those men saw something in you. Maybe you didn't see in you. And they placed you there because God showed them something in you. So don't make this mysterious and spooky. You know, like, like there's a writing on the wall. Notice at the end, prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage, don't forget that God has equipped you and talented you, given you the ability to wage good warfare. Notice holding faith, staying on that petros, that solid rock foundation, holding faith and a good conscience. Re by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck. Now I'm going to tell you, I think when he talks about some, he's talking about preachers because he's talking to Timothy as a preacher some of these pastors, some of these ministers have made shipwreck of their faith. And then he mentions two names. He says the names. I'm sure these guys appreciated it. Of whom is Hymenius and Alexander. Notice Paul's delicate and sensitive way of handling these two preachers who have made shipwreck of their faith and went off preaching maybe the gospel of the cause. Maybe they talked about the law coming in. You had to do certain thing to be saved or sanctified. He said, I have handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Spurgeon mentions, that's interesting, you would think you would hand somebody over to Satan to learn to blaspheme. But Paul says, we put them out of the church because they were teaching and preaching heresy. And if we didn't 
We put them in the domain of Satan out in the world. We excommunicated them because the truth had to remain pure within the church. And false teachers, false prophets will destroy a church fellowship. And Paul put them out. 